1: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Hello.
3: Hello, it's nice to be back in the loft.
2: It is, we've been out on the road, we were in Bristol
3: and then you heard the Liverpool episode as well. And then well. I was in and had been in America and you know, when I rang the bell I felt like I'm coming home. You know? And um, I arranged a little treat for you
2: because... As you walked in, a friend of mine was here and I got them to play Abba's Waterloo
3: on the piano because last night... Uh- I had my Waterloo. I've disproved the idea that there is no bad karaoke.
2: <laughs>
3: so this- That's what you told me. You were lying. I didn't f- choose effing Waterloo either.
2: Well, I, I mean, I do think you were stitched up there. I think like a real key in karaoke is to have the, the the choice of your own song. You yeah, need to feel comfortable. I should feel have done Take On Me anyway. So, But what, thank
3: you, I should thank Vicky Foxcroft, Ellie Reeves, and Damien Egan, uh, who's a mayoral candidate in Lewisham, who all sort of were good sports and did it along with me. And this was the fundraiser you were at? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and we're, we're sort of, you know, we're kind of jamming all the tapes. We're sort of, you know, going out there trying to destroy all the evidence. Because I had a tip-off last night
2: from Kerry McCarthy MP. She messaged me to say, I'm hearing reports that Ed is on stage singing Waterloo at a fundraiser. Mm. And then I took to Twitter, I did a search, a search
3: for your name, Karaoke yeah. Waterloo,
2: and nothing. Well, we were so-
3: jamming. We were jam- <laughs> we were, we'd taken advice from the Chinese state and we were sort of jamming all means of electronic communication, actually.
2: The sad thing about this is, that it, does this now mean that you won't consider the
3: idea of a Reasons to be Cheerful team karaoke outing? No, I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm open to it. Maybe next time we'll do it together. I'm up for you it. You can be Bjorn to my Benny. I want to be Benny. Okay, you can be Benny to my Bjorn then. <laughs> I don't know my Benny from my Bjorn.
2: Now, before we get on to what we're talking about this week, we have some news, and we also need
3: you to do something. Yes, we've been nominated for another award, two awards, in fact, by the British Podcast Awards: Best New Podcast and Best Current Affairs Podcast. Whoop whoop! Yeah, we're very pleased, extremely pleased. But also,
2: also we need. Your help, because there's a public vote. There's there's a, a listener's choice award. Now, Ed and I had a discussion about whether we get into this or not. I'm saying, oh, what's the point? My dad wrote a porno. They've got a gajillion listeners. They're just going to get all their listeners to vote, and we don't stand a chance. But the, I have
3: faith in our listeners. You do. I have faith because you, they you, are committed, hardcore, you know, people who've so brought us to this point. Basically, what
2: you're saying is you love a public vote.
3: Yes, Despite they've gone, past so well. it's gone
2: so well for me. <laughs> so you, you're now in you're now in uh, electioneering mode. You're now canvassing for votes. I am. So we would like you to go to the British Podcast Awards website, which is britishpodcastawards.com, and there's a nomination section. And within that is a listener choice, and you can vote for reasons to and be cheerful. And you can just do it
3: on the website. So it's kind of easy to do. It'll take one minute of your time. And, of course, the reason we want to do it is we want more people to know about reasons to be cheerful so they too can be cheerful. So it is entirely altruistic. <laughs> it's not because you want yet another award to go on your shelf at home. You've got no, one, you've got taste I'm, for I'm it. I'm not refighting the 2015 general election. <laughs> it's nothing to do with that. It's because we want more people to have the opportunity to be cheered up and hear about good things and make the world a better place. So do you want to go doorstepping? Maybe. It might we might we might go do some door, rallies? door to door across the rallies across the country. Get Stormzy We need to get a battle bus. We do. Maybe that's true. John Prescott. Yeah. Maybe even a new a new Edstone.
2: Perhaps not. <laughs> so it's BritishPodcastAwards.com and then go to the nomination. Take a section. minute of your time and we would be extremely grateful. We should talk about what we're talking about this week, and this is this is something close to your heart. Yeah, we're talking about climate
3: change, long overdue. Um, I was the Climate Change Secretary uh, from 2008 to 2010. It's something I care a lot about. I think it's something care, lots of people care about. I think we want to do it in a way that is realistic about some of the challenges, but offers people some solutions. We've got an absolutely stellar stellar cast of people, including Kim Holman, who's the head of the Norwegian Polar Institute. Believe it or not, I met him on my summer holiday uh, in the Arctic uh, two and a half years ago. I had an extraordinary trip to the northernmost town in the world, Ni Allison in Norway, where you get to see you know, the glaciers, the retreat of the glaciers, what is happening. And he showed me round and, and show, it's just an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. And he's a really great and wise person. So I'm delighted to have him. Uh, we've got uh, Christiana Figueres, who is the, the architect of the historic 2015 Paris Agreement. Joss Garman. Uh, and Leo Barassi, who both know lots about this subject. So it's a, great, it's a great group of people we've got. Was that
2: not a depressing summer holiday? Because, yes, you're in this beautiful part of the world, but uh, uh, on the other
3: hand, you're just being shown the terrible effects of climate well, you're change. you're not just that, because you're, you're communing with nature, seeing polar bears, all of that stuff. I mean, it, it was, and, you know, honestly, it was, it was sort of fantastic. Dolphins, whales, all of the, you know, the works. All the big ones. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is yesterday, I... All your troubles
2: seem so far away. <laughs> I, I, I did some exercise of sorts. So I was meeting a friend of mine for a cup of tea, and he, he came along on one of these bikes that you can, uh, that you can just rent for half an hour or so on. Oh, yes. Not the so called Boris bikes yes. or Kensicles, but there's some new company that's doing them. You can just kind of leave them anywhere. Yeah. So I thought, I'll have a go on that. So I picked up one of these bikes and I thought, I'm going to cycle home. So I started cycling home and then just the, the London traffic was terrifying to me. I can imagine. Yeah. So I just I started pushing like, along the pavement yeah. for a bit. But then I plotted in my mind a route home which would avoid buses yeah. and, and traffic. And I managed to get home. I mean, the feel that I was pushing my own. Sort of uh, physical Limits. limitations to the point of heart attack, but I managed to get all the way home from the city area of London on a bicycle that's well impressive done. right isn't that it? is it it's
3: impressive for you that it's like yeah. massively impressive I don't drive I'm not great well, on the highway absolute, in absolute terms it's impressive yeah. and in relative terms it's massively I, I, impressive
2: I, I went over a zebra crossing when I shouldn't have done and, and nearly hit a guy's dog and he shouted after me that's I didn't not, hit the dog yeah. but apart from that it, it, it was all without incident really so that's my reason to be cheerful that is very
3: reason to be cheerful thank I you. give you my congratulations thank you what's yours well mine is slightly more sort of uh, what's uh, sedentary uh, than that um, you know, you and I are always looking for good box sets. I cannot recommend highly enough a thing called This or Call My Agent. It's a French series um, about this acting agency and the agents. And honestly, it, it was recommended to me by a journalist called Sam Coates of The Times. Now he and I had our run-ins when I was uh, leader, but I tell you, fisticuffs. We, no, no, no. We, we've, de- but we've. I tell you, we, if there was a hatchet, it's definitely been buried. He's a, he's a brilliant recommender of box sets and it's it's funny it's really funny and you know i'm always looking for something i don't really want politics right Mm. because i don't really i I like designated survivor uh which is this thing with Kiefer sutherland but but i i I don't really want something like the thick of it because it's like reminds me of what my life (laughs) has been like is like um i don't really i don't you know i like the bridge and the killing and all that which i like a bit of sort of escapist murder but sometimes (laughs)
1: escapist murder uh, but
3: but 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 the thing is that sometimes that's kind of quite depressing and scary yeah there's something about this which is it's quite funny it's got some profound bits um but it's sort of it's not in a world that i'm sort of in you know Mm. and it's it's so i really can't recommend it highly enough
0: you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd
3: Well, I'm really delighted and honoured that we're now joined by Christiana Figueres, who was Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and was really the architect of the historic Paris Agreement of 2015 and now runs an organisation called Mission 2020, designed to raise the world's ambition uh, on climate change. Christiana, thanks so much for joining us.
0: No, thank you very much. I'm delighted to uh, be with you.
3: For people who don't know the detail,
2: can you summarise what what was agreed um, in the Paris Agreement? What what were the were the main achievements of it?
0: The top line uh, purpose and objective of the Paris Agreement is an agreement among all 195 countries and parentheses. Now, after um, the Paris Agreement, as we know, the United States has communicated that they would like to exit. But they are currently the only one single individual country that is outside of this global effort. Other than the United States, all other countries in the world currently have one uh, shared objective with respect to their greenhouse gas emissions, and that is that by 2050, uh, the world will be at a global economy where we are not emitting more greenhouse gas emissions than what the planet can absorb naturally. So we are on a trajectory of descent, of peaking, let's say, of peaking greenhouse gas emissions by 2020 and a very clear descent after that. What that means is, major um, step up in efficiency, the way that we are using energy and certainly how we are producing energy, moving quickly from fossil fuel generation to cleaner and cleaner until we get to uh, renewable energy generation around the world.
3: And of course, the the other big aspect of Paris is to keep global temperatures from rising by more than two degrees centigrade, or if possible, one and a half degrees centigrade, the sort of dangerous tipping point, as some people call it. Christiana, tell us, given the incredible achievement of Paris, how far away are we from actually achieving that overall goal and what needs to happen now? Because in a way, that's the purpose of Mission 2020, as I understand it.
0: Yes, so so we are actually um, on track on, in many sectors. We're definitely on track in energy because we have uh, already invested 300, more than 300 billion dollars into renewable energy last year. And that uh, investment continues globally because of the very dramatic drop in the cost of renewable energy, making it uh, or making a, a full suite of renewable energies cost competitive in many jurisdictions to fossil fuels so renewable energy is definitely on track mobility has very much picked up speed uh, in the past six to twelve months with most of the uh vehicle manufacturing companies of the world announcing that they are moving substantial part or if not all of their models to electric uh version and uh letting go of the internal combustion engine model anywhere between starting in 2020 all the way up to 2030. So that will be the decade of full dramatic transformation in mobility around the world for light transport. So in everything that has to do with energy, whether it's transport or energy generation, we're actually doing quite well. You have to understand that this transformation cannot happen at the turn of a a dime. It's not something that happens from one night to the next morning. But the trajectory that we have set out is actually the good trajectory. The sectors in which we are not on track yet are definitely the land use and agriculture sectors where the transformation is much more difficult because it is a very distributed and disseminated uh, sector with millions of farmers participating. And hence, behavioral change and practice changes are much more difficult to embark on. Um, and heavy industry, which has a hard time moving its energy practices. So a mixed picture, um, however, with, uh, with, with very good news coming in every day, actually.
3: And for people listening to this podcast, Christiana, who feel incredibly admiring of your efforts and a little bit more optimistic having heard you, but feel a bit powerless against the sort of massive forces that are out there what would you advise them to be doing as individuals i mean what 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 and i don't necessarily mean their own behavior but 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 if they want to get involved if they care about this as so many people do what can they do whether it's pressuring governments or their own individual behavior
0: I think from the point of view of an individual, there are four very concrete things that each of us can and should be doing. Um, uh, And of course, all of this is in the understanding that this is not only a responsibility of governments, not only a responsibility of, of, uh, of corporates, but actually it is a responsibility of every single individual alive right now. So there are four things that all of us can do. Number one, what are we eating? If those of us, well, I won't count myself in there because I don't. But those who are still eating meat every single day are truly not living up to any sense of stewardship and responsibility. So, what we are eating, what we're eating, and where the or what the source of that food is, the geographic source of that food is very, very critical. So, we can certainly be much more aware of our eating behaviors. First, secondly, how do we transport ourselves? If You know, if in uh, some countries, fortunately not so much in the UK where you and I both live, um, but in some countries there are many people who are still driving gas, guzzling huge vehicles with single occupants, very irresponsible. So how we transport ourselves and moving toward public transport and toward low emission shared vehicles, absolutely critical. So what we eat, how we transport ourselves. Thirdly, where is our capital? Those of us who are over a certain age and who have perhaps some disposable uh, capital on our hands should really look very consciously into where is that capital invested. If our capital is in any way supporting high carbon assets, those should be shifted. We should be shifting our capital and asking our asset managers to shift capital over to low carbon or no carbon. And finally, and finally, Those of us who live in democratic countries should be very, very aware of the power of voting and should be very consciously and intentionally voting for political leaders at the local and at the national level who are aware of this responsibility and of the opportunity of addressing climate change um, and are going to be supporting climate change friendly policies.
3: That is a brilliant summary, I must say. I, I feel empowered by that uh, answer. Just on a, one follow-up, this thing about pension funds, it may not have occurred to lots of people, but, but just say a bit more about this, because, because I think lots of people don't really engage with where their pension money is invested or what their bank does. Just say a bit more about the difference people can make in that area.
0: Well, actually, um, on, on, the, on the topic of investments, there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is that if I have my, uh, my pension in a pension fund, that I should actually lobby that pension fund to exit completely from all high-carbon assets and do what is called divest. So to exit completely and starve, if you will, the, the, the final effect of that would be to starve high-carbon assets of uh, liquidity and of capital in order to force them to shift over to a new business model. That is one school of thought. There's another school of thought that says, well, that may not be the best way to do it. We should remain invested in those high carbon assets and influence through the investor and shareholder uh, meetings. We should be influencing those corporations to shift over. I frankly um, am not convinced that these two are mutually exclusive. Uh, I think both should be pursued. And from the point of view of individual, individual uh, who have their money in pensions, I think you should follow whatever feels right for you. Uh, What is unacceptable is to remain blissfully ignorant of the fact that your pension money really does have a huge effect and not to be concerned about where your money is.
2: Christiana, I hate to even bring the name up, but you've had Donald Trump saying that he wants the United States to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. Your level of people saying reassuring things to you, people saying, oh, don't worry, it's a madman in the White House, We'll, we'll get it sorted out. Are there reasons for optimism, do you think?
0: Well, ironically, ironically, I actually think that what has happened in the United States, or rather in the White House, which is not the same as the United States, um, has actually helped our cause. Isn't that ironic? Uh, for a couple of reasons. First, when uh, Trump announced his intent to leave the Paris Agreement, immediately afterward, you had a opposite reaction, as usually happens in physics. Every action has an opposite and equal reaction so within 24 hours you had an opposite reaction from cities from states and from corporations in the united states that uh, said well that may be the political position of uh, of the federal government but that is not binding on us we understand we have been decarbonizing for a while we understand that it's good for our economies and they are continue to move forward in fact over 50% of the real economy in the united states continues to decarbonize because they understand that it has been good for their economy. So that is actually quite interesting. And the other thing that is very interesting is that that opposite reaction that we saw in the United States is mirrored internationally. We have not seen a single country that has now said, ah, the United States intends to leave, then we're also going to leave, quite to the contrary. Quite ironically, we had two countries that had not joined the Paris Agreement that have joined the Paris Agreement after the uh, announced uh, political move of the United States. So we do not see any international repercussion. Quite to the contrary, we see countries like China and India moving in very with a lot of determination and a lot of capital. Into a leadership space of the new technologies and the new business models, because if the United States, uh, if the United States is not going to be taking that leadership, then China and India would like to move in quite aggressively. And uh, just China, to use one example, is investing hugely into renewable energy. Why? Because they are going to get thirteen million new jobs out of that investment. By 2020. And they are positioning themselves to be competitive in a global economy in which this century is definitely going to be an economy that is on a very, very clear decarbonization path. And they want to continue to be competitive with their exports. So therefore, they want to decarbonize.
3: Last question, Christiana. When you took over your job as the executive secretary of the UNFCCC, your first press conference, you were asked whether. We could get a binding agreement. And you said not in my uh, lifetime. And you've joked about this. Indeed. Uh, You've joked about this afterwards. You turned out you you proved yourself wrong. Just more looking forward. And I know you're sort of the the kind of eternal warrior for optimism. But but we're in a race against time. How winnable is this race against time? Do you really feel?
0: You know, I think the answer to that question is one that is focused on the next two years. While addressing climate change is a long-term effort, obviously over several decades until we can get to this zero net, so the balance of emissions, um, and that will not occur until two or three decades from now. But the, uh, the alarming uh, fact is that whether we're able to get to 2050 on time, at the rates of carbon emissions that we need to get to is largely going to be determined uh, over the next two years, largely determined by the investments that are made into infrastructure. Because if over the next two years, we invest, make the investments into infrastructure that are high carbon infrastructure investments, we're going to be locked in to the greenhouse gas emissions that come with that infrastructure, for the lifetime of that infrastructure, which is 30, 40, 50 years. If, however, over the next two years, we make decisions that lock us into low-carbon infrastructure, then we stand a very good chance of decarbonizing over time. So the answer to your question is that very much depends on what we're doing over the next two years. And that's why we're raising the voice of alarm for all of us to understand that we truly are facing a crossroads here in which we can Still, even if it is very, very late, we can still address climate change in uh, an impactful way, or we might not be able to.
3: Christiana Figueres, thank you so much for joining us. That's, that's been brilliant.
0: Thank you very much. To get a sense
3: of what is happening right on the front line, we're joined, uh, and I'm really delighted to have him with us, we're joined now by Kim Holman, who's the International Director of the Norwegian Polar Institute. And as Jeff might know, I spent part of my summer holiday in the Arctic uh, in 2015, and I had the absolute pleasure of meeting Kim and him showing me around Allison, uh, which is the most northernmost town um, in, in the world. Kim, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: Let's just start with some some basics. You live in the Arctic uh, year-round. You're a eminent scientist. What do you see happening uh, in the Arctic that you can tell our listeners about in terms of climate change?
4: Well, uh, wherever I look, I see change. Uh, I see uh, a warming uh, Arctic. I see... Uh, Sea ice not forming, Uh, open ocean in the middle of the winter, Uh, the permafrost, the ground is warming up, thawing, Uh, the snow leaves us earlier in the spring, Uh, the glaciers are melting by 30 to 40 centimeters per year in thickness in the fronts. Uh, You name it, it is change. I see change in the plankton and in the ocean. We see new fish, uh, Atlantic cod instead of Arctic cod, and we see changes in in birds' uh, populations, and, of course, we also see uh, changes in uh, polar bear behavior.
3: Tell us a bit about that, um, because obviously the polar bears is where some people sort of focus, and it's a, it so gives people a way of understanding what's what's going on. What what kind of changes do we see?
4: Well, we must remember that uh, the polar bear was heavily hunted, and uh, we stopped hunting them in 1973. So there is a rebound from that time, uh, such that uh, it's what we see on the ground is a mixed. Uh, story but uh, the polar bear is dependent on ice to hunt uh, they capture seals in, uh, in the ice uh, or on the ice edge and uh, as the uh, ice recedes uh, they have, are losing habitat they're losing life space And uh, there are areas in Svalbard where uh, the polar bear essentially is gone and it is shifting to the areas where there still is ice. And of course, over time, a few decades from now, uh, clearly the ice uh, has receded so far that they probably are moving out.
3: Moving out of the Norwegian Arctic Svalbard completely? Yes and kim you've seen these changes happening over decades is that right i mean we we know that the last winter was a particularly warm winter but but this is this is like a long run trend is it
4: well it has been ongoing for at least uh, the last 30 years uh, and i've seen i uh, i followed it uh, personally for more than 30 years uh, and uh, Painfully, it's an accelerating uh, phenomenon. So the last 15 years are worse uh, in that respect uh, than the the previous 15 years. And all
2: these things you've talked about from the polar bears and the plankton and the water temperature, uh, this stuff is without precedent in history. In other words, you feel there's very strong evidence that this is man-made.
4: Yes. I mean, uh, climate has always changed, will always change. But the rates and uh, the uh, collected uh, evidence from the different uh, expressions of climate, temperature, precipitation, uh, rain versus snow, and many other factors that we look at, uh, together they are difficult to explain with any other explanation than uh, human-induced climate change.
3: For those people who might think uh, we're upset about the polar bears and the plankton and all that, explain how this, if they don't visit the Arctic, or even maybe they don't care about the Arctic how will it affect them and their children and their children and future generations in the future? Because it is this isn't confined to the Arctic, even if the effects are, are most apparent there.
4: Well, the Arctic is the place where the changes come first and the fastest. Uh, we uh, They are a forewarning for what is to come for the rest of us or the rest of the planet. Uh, but... Uh, The changes here influence weather patterns around the world. They influence the uh, survival of uh, various migrating species. The climate in the Arctic influences uh, climate elsewhere. It can even reach as far as the Indian monsoon. And that, uh, certainly for myself, is... uh, a very central element that it has to do with food security for uh, human beings at large.
3: Kim, obviously the thing that's happened since I saw you in the Arctic was the Paris Agreement of 2015. Does that make you more optimistic, and how do we need to build on that?
4: If I look at it as a scientist... The Paris Agreement uh, was far from what has to be done in order to safeguard uh, a good future for our children and grandchildren and life in general. But it was good in the sense that everyone was there and that there was an agreement. Uh, We see uh, negative trends in some ways uh, in some countries around the world. but. We also see some very positive trends with uh, renewable energy in China and India. There are some very positive trends as well. But I usually answer that question with, I'm an optimist because there is no alternative.
3: Kim Holman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
2: So listening to that with us are Leo Barassi, author of Climate Majority, From Apathy to Action, and Joss Garman, former Greenpeace and IPPR climate director. Joss, we we heard there from Kim talking about how urgent it is that we take action can you start by giving us an idea where we're up to in the UK with the debates? So I, I can feel like Brexit dominates everything in the news and everything else is brushed under the carpet. What what conversations and debates are being had at government level at the moment?
5: Yeah, well, you know what? It's actually a like relatively good picture in the sense that if you look at the last few years, the two countries in the world that have decarbonised at the fastest pace are us. And would you believe it, China, in terms of if you look at the the pace of the reductions that are happening in carbon. So just a few years ago, we were getting almost half of all our power in this country from coal. Over the last few days, there's been no coal at all. And and overall, we're expecting to have no coal on the system at all within a few years. So British emissions are actually at their lowest level at the minute since the 1890s. So we're actually doing relatively well. That said, we've done the easy stuff and all the hard stuff is still to come. And so actually, if you look at the real really big challenge now is how do we clean up road transport which so it used to be the case that most of the emissions in Britain came from our power stations, and actually that 's no longer the case. More than half of all the power that we generate in the u k comes from low carbon sources these days more more than a third of that comes from renewable energy, so we 're doing quite well. When it comes to um, the power sector, obviously, we need to do even better than we are. But the real problem now is diesel cars, petrol cars. How do we get them off the road? How do we start using much cleaner forms of transport? And then we need to start thinking about other sectors like land use. And so people don't really think about it when they think about climate change. But the peat bogs in Scotland and the north of England, huge carbon sinks. You know, how do we protect those peat bogs? How do we start planting new forests again? Um, in any land area where we can to suck carbon out of the air. And the Queen, you know, said that she's doing a bit of that this week. But actually, we could pioneer solutions like that in the UK and then apply them all around the world. And really, when it comes to Britain's role in the whole climate debate, people often say, look, we're only 2% of global emissions. But actually, if you look at Britain's real value in the global debate over climate change, it's pioneering the technological solutions, pioneering the policy solutions. You know, we're the first country in the world to pass the Climate Change Act, thanks to uh, the man sitting over there. Um, and actually, we've got we've sustained that consensus, to be fair to the Tories, in a cross-party way. Um, and the, the real challenge now is, how do we take it to the next level and how do we take it all the way to zero? We've heard from both... Um christiana and kim paris
3: was a good thing it it had these quite grand ambitions keep global warming to no more than two degrees c or one and a half we're already at one as i understand it one degrees warming compared to pre-industrial levels how much better do we need to do in terms of what each country is contributing to have a chance of meeting one and a half or even two degrees
5: yeah, so I think at the minute we're way off, right? So the all the governments in the world, and it was historic and we shouldn't kind of um, be too down on it, but every country in the world agreed that we need to get to this goal of keeping global temperatures to no more than one and a half degrees. And that ultimately means that any pollution we create anywhere in the world by the middle of the century needs to be offset by pollution that we suck out of the air, be that through forests or be that through technology that we use. And that is... Obviously, going to be incredibly challenging to get to. And if you look at the current plans, UK aside, look at the rest of the world, we're so far from that. You know, you still have Germany, which is often looked at as a climate leader, burning coal and creating even new open cast coal mines. And that's supposedly a climate leader. So, actually, if you look at all the plans in the world at the minute, they add up to three or four degrees of global warming. And that's incredibly dangerous. That means, you know, the worst floods that Britain could ever imagine and it means you know potentially the collapse of the Amazon rainforest and the most precious biospheres in the world like you know the Arctic and so on so the scale of the threat is massive and at the minute we're not avoiding it that said we've got the technology and a lot of the things that we have to do we have to do anyway because we're already poisoning kids lungs with air pollution in London so we've got to get diesel cars off the road anyway you know people are already concerned about um wanting to travel in a much more clean way anyway, because of things like noise pollution. People are interested in the jobs and these technologies of the future anyway. So a lot of this stuff we're going to do anyway. Uh, Where it gets really tricky is the things that we wouldn't necessarily do anyway. And that's why ultimately we do need to have and win this argument over climate change itself. Leo, this would be a good
2: point to to bring you in. So as an individual, when I was listening to Christiana, I thought, oh, there's a, there's a lot I can do. And then when I was listening to Kim, I was thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter what I do. As, as an individual big change with society needs to happen um what's what's closest to the truth and actually where where are people on this what's the public mood on it Are p- people ready to do stuff yeah so i'm
6: interested in why public opinion matters and where it is at the moment so if we think about what needs to happen there's a bunch of things that We've already been doing and we need to carry on doing that are actually quite far from most people's lives. So things like closing down coal power stations, either people don't notice or when they hear about it, they tend to quite like it because people tend to prefer wind turbines and solar panels to coal. So that's that's sort of easy. Um but as we're looking ahead over the next few decades, we're getting towards a bunch of things that are very close to people's lives. And people are either gonna notice or they're going to notice and have to support. So, Joss mentioned um, getting people away from petrol and diesel cars onto electric vehicles. Now, public opinion is going to be important there, but it's not all that difficult because we've also got other reasons that that's going to be attractive, so uh, tackling air pollution and things. But where... It's going to start getting really challenging and really important. What people think is when we start getting to the stuff that you, you kind of only do because of climate change. So when we start talking about uh, reducing emissions from the food we eat, so that mostly means doing things about meat. So eating less meat, perhaps. Uh, or can you
2: explain for people why why is that? Is stuff around water and around deforestation? Right?
6: Yeah. So it's quite it's quite a subtle thing because so, it comes from a few different places, but. Um, some uh, there's a surprisingly large proportion of the UK's emissions come from uh, the food we eat, and it depends how you measure it. You can get you can call it eighteen percent, you can call it thirty percent if you measure it in different ways. The point is, it's a large chunk, and we're going to have to deal with it. Now, some of that comes from if we're um, getting meat from South America, then that might be meat that's um, come from uh, uh, land that was originally rainforest, or actually more often, it's um, meat that was fed fed on soy that comes from rainforests that's been chopped down but also um some animals that we eat particularly cows and sheep they produce a lot of methane they burp a lot of methane and that means for not just you just <laughs> cow farts were huge issue. so um that means that when when we're eating meat essentially that methane was there in the production so uh, it's a surprisingly large chunk and it's kind of invisible. So it's not obvious to people. I mean, when when we drive a car, it's kind of obvious that, that that's producing emissions because we, we sort of see the fuel going in and we can see the fumes coming out. But it's more subtle. And when we start talking about that stuff, then we're not at a place where people get it and get why we'd need to change it. And what do we need to do then? What do we
3: need to do to convince people?
6: So if we think about why people are where they're at at the moment... Uh Psychologists say that the problem with climate change is it's quite distant it's quite um it moves quite slowly it's sort of it's not an immediate threat, and humans are really good at dealing with immediate threats so we can we yeah. can dodge something that's that's thrown at us but climate change it affects other people it affects distant generations uh and it moves slowly at least that's how it's often presented but actually i don't think that's right, and I think um the presentation of climate change is something that that principally affects the arctic that affects polar bears these are hugely important things but they're not motivating for most people's day-to-day lives so the fact that in the last year we've had a record hurricane season in north america much of the u.s has been on fire southern europe had a record heat wave cape town came within a few weeks of having to switch off its water supply these are things that are happening now and and the sort of the sense that climate is a distant thing i think should no longer be the case so there's an urgency to it. But I think also the point that actually this is something that we can do something about, that this isn't uh, an insoluble problem, that this is something that uh, actually is within our control to, to tackle, and that doing it can make our lives better in other ways is really important.
3: What is the balance, and this is something obviously I thought about as climate change secretary, and I'm not sure I got it right, what is the balance between disaster warning and positivity? Because the thing we've maybe not talked about is you know the green jobs and all of that. Now that has become you know that that, you can't present that simplistically. But but talk to us about the balance you've got to do both and there's a perennial and really frustrating
6: debate in the climate world with one set of people saying you need to talk about disasters and one set of people saying you've got you've got to um be uh, be optimistic and i mean it was really striking the new new york magazine had a had an article uh, earlier this year uh, called the uninhabitable earth which essentially projected how bad things could get and it was by some distance their most read and shared shared piece ever and twitter and certainly what I saw was a huge amount of people who don't talk about climate change looking at that and saying, this this is the thing that we're really scared about and we want to talk about. So without the threat, you don't get people in. I mean, if if this is a thing that is just going to be about generating some jobs, then I don't think that many people are going to be passionate about it. But on the other hand, we know about... A tonne of, of global threats. I mean, how often do we talk about um, anti- antibiotic resistance or until David Attenborough, we all knew about plastics in the oceans, but we didn't really talk about it. Until you get something that allows you to think that you can deal with it, then it just, it just goes into that box in your mind of sort of,
2: yeah, this is bad, but I actually would rather not think about it because it's too bleak. Isn't it weird that the right-wing press love a disaster? Just thinking, them you mentioned the antibiotics resistance,
3: but they they haven't latched onto climate change well, the plastics, in the same way. Well, the male is yeah. suppose the male is onto plastic. I mean that maybe that speaks to what your point is.
6: So so the left-right thing is a really interesting problem with climate change. So I, I ran a poll for the book that um, looked at the political polarisation. And what I found is that climate change is the single most politically polarised issue out of anything that I tested. So people are more likely in to... In Britain? Think, um, so both the Britain and US, and it's worse in the US, the polarisation is a bit less in the UK. But... People are more likely to think that left wing people are worried about climate change than any other issue and more worried to think that than they are to think that conservatives are the people who are most worried about things like defence and immigration and national debt. So it's got really polarised. And that then means if you're not on the left, you look at it as an issue that doesn't really belong to you, that uh, worries other people. And that just makes makes people in general. It's this in group out group thing. People
5: are just a bit less likely to engage with it because it's not their issue. I think the other thing is it's there's been a tendency to think about this as, as if it's an environmental debate. And obviously it is an environmental debate, but it's also about the entire future nature of our economy. So if we're talking about the power that we're generating or the cars that we're producing or the trade that we're having and the nature of the trade agreements we're striking, like all of this is, is the climate debate. Like That essentially is the climate debate. So to, to go back to inevitably we have to talk about Brexit, um, at the minute we have a bunch of trade rules about how we trade with Europe that require that, for example, American gas guzzlers just aren't allowed in Britain. That's a requirement so long as we trade with Europe. Well, the US Commerce Secretary has already said that if we want to trade deal with Trump, we're going to have to change our car standards. So these, um, you know, the practical policy implications of the climate debate are about the, the entire nature of our economy. You know, questions like... Uh, who pays for green investment? So if you look over the last decade, the poorest families in Britain have paid in about six times more as a proportion of their income the wealthiest families and that's through energy prices because of the way that the funding formulas worked yeah so it's gone in terms of quite regressive taxes on energy bills and then there's been an outcry from the daily mail saying you know green crap on our bills and david Cameron says let's cut the green crap and actually there's a kernel of truth in the sense that actually how we have structured it has been quite unjust so we have to get into all those issues about who pays who benefits Uh, What are the industries we want to create? What do we do about the people who work in the industries we want to shut down? I mean, there are a lot of people in Britain working in producing combustion engine cars. And in a few years, those jobs just aren't going to be here. So what are we going to do to make sure those people who rely on that income are skilled up so that they can produce electric cars instead? All of these kind of debates we need to be having. And yet, because it's constantly put into the environment box, uh, people just don't really talk about these issues that much. So this sense of equity is really important. If, if we
6: look back five, six years ago, then a, a, a constant argument for why we shouldn't take action in the West um, to do to, on climate change was because China was building two coal power stations a week. And the fact that the Paris Agreement now means that every country is committed to deal with it really allows us to say, at an international level, this is something that everyone is making sacrifices or making changes to deal with. And I think that ties in with, with Joss's point, that this has to happen both internationally and within our own country. And I think we, we're getting there internationally. That, that's, that's happening now. But it's, it's as we move to make changes within our own country, being able to show that, that this is
3: distributed fairly, I think is something that we just haven't yet got right. I mean, I completely agree with that, this last point that you've both made, which is the, the sort of climate justice and social justice have been too much seen as separate. And uh, unless you won't bring people with you, unless there is a sense of fairness about what's happening. Um, we have a thing called the Jeffocracy, uh, which is Jeff being the ultimate um, ruler, which Jeff is quite keen on. I um if you were joint climate change secretaries in the jeffocracy what's the thing that you and i know this is like sounds a bit simplistic but what's the thing you would do most urgently or what what what's the sort of what's the way you would approach this either for britain or for the world or or, or for both
5: well i would start by saying we have to finish cleaning up the way that we generate our power because then we're going to electrify how we move around and we need to make sure that that electricity is coming from clean sources now we're almost there as i mentioned like we've all almost got coal off the system now we need to get gas off the system we need to be moving the way that we heat our homes as well that's going to be really important because that's about a third of all of the uk's emissions as well is about how we heat our homes and businesses so we have to do that stuff first then we have to electrify our road transport so we're all moving around in electric buses and electric cars and then after that we have to think about the food we're generating and how we use our land to make sure that we're planting forests and we're protecting our natural carbon sinks like peat bogs, but also to make sure that um, we're, uh, you know, doing all of that, as you say, in a fair way so that Britain's benefiting and we're getting great jobs and we're, you know, enjoying like better our lives, lives and having people. prosperous lives. Exactly. Yeah. So I agree with all of that. But I think the thing
6: that I'd add is whilst we're doing that, we need to talk about it more because... Totally at, right. At the point at which we start making changes that people notice, if this hasn't been part of our conversation, we haven't been talking about how it affects people, we haven't been talking about the benefits of dealing with it, and we suddenly announce there's going to be all these changes, then most people who actually are worried about climate change and think that it's real are still going to look at that and just sort of be confused and not get why we need to do that so until we have those conversations we've got a real risk that this stuff isn't going to happen
3: you optimistic yeah i if i look around at the uk the answer is you've got to say yes on this podcast oh (laughs) no, no, yes. no, go on, no, no. <laughs> yeah, if I look around the UK, we've been making great progress.
6: And the fact that we're now looking at actually strengthening our climate change laws is really encouraging. And around the world, countries, governments are taking it seriously. It's going to be hard, but compared with where we were five, six years ago, we're in a much better place.
5: Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look at this in the grand sweep of history and, you know, the rise of fascism, fall of fascism, rise of communism, fall of communism, these huge, like, transformational societal changes happened over just a few years. And already we're seeing how economies that built their prosperity on burning trees and burning coal are now building their prosperity on clean technologies. And so long as we carry on doing that and we speed things up a little bit, we're going to be fine.
3: But But it's urgent. It's ur- urgent. It's urgent. Cristiano it's urgent. next
5: couple of years. I mean, we've got to
3: get... Governments have got to raise their ambitions in the next couple of years. But the
5: point is, it's doable. Joss
3: and Leo, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure.
5: Cheers.
3: What did you make of that, Buster? I,
2: I was all over the place. At times, I was feeling really positive. I listened to Christiana, and I'm feeling really positive. Yeah. Then I listened to Kim, and I'm thinking, the plankton, the polar bears, the water temperature, yeah. this is terrible. And then Joss and Leo come along, and actually it seems like the Conservative government have done more than you might expect them to in, in carrying on. They've kept the show on the road, yeah. at least. I mean, I personally think they should have done more, but they've kept the show on the some- road. But that's something, isn't yeah. it? Uh, and then, you know, when they started talking about Brexit and how, say, an American trade deal might mean that we end up with these big gas-guzzling cars over here. Then it got really depressing again. So I don't know. I feel like there's reasons for optimism in there. But it definitely needs to be moved more into the mainstream in terms of the conversations we're having.
3: I mean, I totally agree with that. And in a way, I feel quite guilty because, you know, when you hear about the scale of the challenge, and also, you know, I think Kim is really moving. We'll post a video of him talking about some of these issues. Just a short video. Um, Kim Holman from the Arctic. You know, it's the most extraordinary place, the Arctic. And, uh, you know, e- this existential threat to, to a lot of what is valued about it is is really real. But I suppose I feel more focus and more urgency in political debate. Get, getting fairness as part of it, not, oh, well, let's care about the environment and then let's deal with fairness somewhere else. Because you'll never take people with you if people think it's unfair and hits the poorest, hardest and, and so on. And then I think this other thing, which is, yes, do warnings about the dangers because you can't ignore them, but also we're about better lives for people. And by tackling this, you can create better lives for people. And that, you know, electric cars, which are not polluting, um, warmer homes that are properly insulated, um, you know, a clean power, uh, you know, all of the cities that are built for not just for cars, but for walking around, for bicycle, you know. That must, it must be possible to present a vision of this as we're going to decent jobs for people, you know, decent jobs in green industries, the industries of the future. So present that picture of a better life and then I think we might do better at, at taking people with us.
1: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, That's stamps.com. Code program.
2: Well, as ever, we would love to hear from you. You can email us. Reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can tweet us at cheerfulpodcast or find us on Facebook, facebook.com, stroke Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. This comes from George Wilson, who says, I listened with interest to the gentrification episode, but felt a bit uncomfortable listening to it, to be honest. I think of myself as someone with fairly centrist views, with a slight lean to the left. However, I did feel that the gentrification episode was a little one-dimensional, predominantly because I seem to be part of the problem. My wife and I, both in our early 30s and in professional jobs, were lucky enough to purchase a house in East London two years ago. The area probably would have been described then as up-and-coming... It's further up now with more people like us having arrived and the area has the usual amenities, cafes, delis, etc, etc. These are interspersed with corner shops and other things that have been there for a while. I often hear complaints about the incomers changing the area. My issue with that is where are we supposed to go? I completely understand that we're in a very privileged position and will probably elicit minimal sympathy, good, well-paid jobs in a position to move house and so on. However, when we're looking at areas to move to, we've been priced out of everywhere else um it's it's an interesting question isn't it I think there's two things the the underlying housing problems which we seem to come back week after week after week the lack of housing stock that's a big one that's out of your hands I do sometimes feel as if people move into areas I'm not saying you're like this George but and and they treat the existing community as extras that make it feel a, a little exotic or diverse without actually engaging With that community. So,
3: finding that cohesiveness could be part of the solution to that. Yeah, I mean, or maybe it's about making sure that um, there's enough social housing in areas, that housing remains affordable. I mean, look, you know, affordability is like a cascade effect, it has an effect on everyone, whatever your income level. You know, people can be priced out at different levels. I think it's so people who've grown up in communities don't feel they can just no longer afford to live there. Mm. But, but I mean, I think the best solution, as you say, is to solve the housing, like build lots more housing, including lots more social housing. I do love a good deli, though. <laughs> By the way, talking of uh, culinary amenities, um, as you might say, there is a crepe place that got tweeted in Bristol. I just missed it, obviously. I don't think it's at the station, or maybe it's further down from the station. So we're going to have to go back. So we blamed Network Rail for forcing the crepe stall out. Well, but... I don't quite know. I can't. I haven't got complete clarity. But there is... Why
2: haven't you devoted your entire I week know, to I finding should, out what I, happened to that I crepe should have stall? Done.
3: Uh, the next one comes from Harriet from London. First, I absolutely love the podcast. It's by, by far the best podcast at the moment. I want to respond to episode 28, and especially Jeff's point. That's you, sunshine, Mm. that he doesn't mind his data being held by the big data companies. I work in digital marketing, and I'm always amazed at how detailed the targeting options are on Facebook. And I don't think people who use Facebook fully understand how much data they hold about you and how advertisers, political parties, or literally anybody who signs up for a Facebook advertising account can use this data. For a savvy marketer, the possibilities to individually target very niche groups are endless. You can tailor adverts for insurance for those who've just bought a car, flog birthday present ideas for those whose dad's birthday is coming up, tell the girl whose best friend has just got engaged that as your friends get married, you deserve to treat yourself, etc., etc. And then she goes on, you could potentially tailor 100 different political campaign videos to all of those different groups as you can create adverts that are only visible to the particular groups that you target. Not only is this a nightmare for accountability in, say, elections, how can you audit campaign posts that you can't see, it also causes divisiveness. You might have a completely different view of the political landscape than your neighbour, just because you see different news stories that affirm your existing biases. Reuters reported that two-thirds of American adults get their news on social media, so I cannot overstate this problem enough. So she basically says... People like Jeff don't care that their data is out there because they think in terms of the information they actually give to Facebook, like their name, hometown, date of birth, but actually it goes much uh, beyond that. The ability to do harm is enormous, even if you do live in a politically and socially liberal society. If you're not so lucky, the amount of information a hostile government could collect about you, your friends, your family, your locations and your past and predicted behaviour might be scarily accurate.
2: And youthful. Does that well, have an effect on you? So I think that bit is especially terrifying. When I think about targeted advertising, I think like everywhere we go in, in modern life, advertising exists and all this money is spent on it. But most adverts, most people will never react to. So surely that money is better spent if the advertising is targeted to the sort of person who might buy it. But then when you start muddying the waters with political advertising, political advertising. Then, I mean, then, it's one, it, then it exactly. feels kind of it I mean, it's yeah. one
3: thing if you're buying a new pair of espadrilles or, yes. you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think it's quite another thing if you're being, t- you know, Targeted with big political, because sometimes
2: I'll see an advert for a, a burger chain pop up online or something. I think, well, whoever the advertising agency is has wasted their client's money because you should be able to know from my data that I'm a vegetarian. Yeah, that's true. So there's some positives to it, but in the but, do you not think it's about regulating political advertising very tightly? Part, We're pretty good on that in this country, you know, compared to not America, so good for online. Example. I don't think. No, be. so is it a question of it, we've just been slow to adapt to the modern world? But then it's it's so labyrinthine that how how do you put yeah that i mean i think look i think
3: we're in the still in the foothills of understanding what we need to do yeah really. uh
2: this comes from amy amy corns who says greetings my boyfriend is a big fan of your podcast i confess that i've not listened to them well thanks amy <laughs> thanks thanks for taking the you know time to, to find out the, uh, the email address though um however i feel as though i have As every now and then, in conversation, he'll just casually say, well, on Ed Miliband's podcast, they were saying, uh, one of these occasions was when neither of us could sleep. I was quite tired, so the details are a bit fuzzy, but after this conversational segue, one of us made the joke, what do you call Ed Miliband when he's sleepy? Bed Miliband. It all went downhill from there. I'm going to include some of these terrible jokes in the hope of amusing you. What do you call Ed Miliband when he's eating his favorite type of cream? I don't know. What do you call Ed Miliband when he's eating his favorite
3: type of cream?
2: Ed Chantillyband. <laughs> what do you call Ed Miliband when he's just feeling fun and flirty? I don't know. Ed Silliband. What do you call Ed Miliband after a day at the seaside? I don't know. This is particularly bad. Ed Millisand. Yep. Uh, What do you call Ed Miliband when quoting him directly? I don't know. Said Miliband. Right. Yeah. Uh, There were many of these. Oh, feel free to uh, send, send more. Christmas bestseller, I <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah. We could do Reasons to be Cheerful crackers Yeah, exactly. with these in them. Uh, so thank
3: you for those, Amy. Oh, thank you, Amy. Thank you, Amy and your boyfriend. I hope you eventually got to sleep.
2: Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast.
3: Vote, vote, vote. <laughs> Vote, vote, vote! British
2: Podcast Award. Is this vote, going to be? Vote. Is this is just going to be relentless now? Is there an election? Relentless. We're in an election Re- period. It's the permanent
3: campaign. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, BritishPodcastAward.com. dot Vote, vote, vote. Vote, 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 vote. Early, vote often. Exactly. And all that. Yeah. Exactly. We need a loud hailer. We need to, me and you, go out in your car. I can hang out the window good with a idea. loud however.
3: Yeah, okay, you're on. It's good. People might think we've gone a bit bonkers wonkers, really. <laughs>
2: bonkers wonkers. There's, there's another one for the collection, everyone. I'll tell you what I was very surprised about in this episode. Yeah? That you're a centigrade guy, that you use the word centigrade.
3: What, as opposed to Celsius?
2: Yes, so you got Mr. Celsius, he invented his scale, it's a great scale. Water centigrade freezes. is a made-up... It's a made-up word, yeah, it's Mr. Celsius But wh- where credit. does it come from, centigrade? I, I don't know the etymology of it, but it always feels to me like um, uh, British people not wanting to say a foreign-sounding word, so they invented Who was centigrade. Mr. Celsius? He, he was Swedish, and he was the guy who came up with that scale where water freezes at zero. And because he's Swedish. And boils at 100, and I do, you know, as a Swedophile, I feel quite protective Another of Another reason to be and Swedish. It, it annoys me if I'm ever on a plane and the, the pilot... Violet gives out the temperature in centigrade. I know you Celsius. But not as much as Fahrenheit annoys me. I'm very anti-Fahrenheit. Really? Yeah. I feel that what people do is they're happy to use Celsius when it's cold, but then when it's hot, they want the number to be as close to 100 as
3: possible. So they can say, so oh, can... Yeah, exactly. It's a few water scorcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe you're going to have a scorcher for your birthday tomorrow.
2: It's, it certainly looks like it, yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I'll have to... Uh... Outside
3: on the South Bank.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be looking for places with good air conditioning, which perhaps so really is in like the spirit heat. of our climate episode. You really
3: don't like heat? Every, every now and again, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. shame. Yeah, I've got my own little system. 20 to 25, I'm quite happy with usually. Yeah. yeah.
3: Should we do some thanks? We should. Yous. Um, Thanks to Christiana Figueres. uh, Thanks to Kim Holman. Thanks to Joss Garman. And thank you to Leo Barassi. I thought fantastic guests. Yeah, brilliant. And Emma Corsham produced our podcast with backup
2: research from Alex feist and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer and we're going to Sheffield. To do a show this week And Gail is going to be joining us Which um, I've never met Gail in the the flesh I'm looking forward to it Yeah, so Gail's our announcer James Deacon made our
3: identity Ed Seed did our music And Emily Power did our design This is right He's been Benny He's been Bjorn And these have been Super Trooper
2: (laughs) Please let us have that karaoke night
4: soon